Hey, everyone. It's Amber. In 2019, I began work on a podcast series that explored how historically marginalized groups were underrepresented in the IBD space. The plan was to record episodes during the spring conferences of 2020 with a goal of publishing in the fall of that same year. As you already know, those conferences didn't happen. I pivoted to recording remotely and finally published the seven-episode series in the spring of 2021. What you're about to hear next is an episode of that series, which is called Healthcare Disparities in IBD. I'm the host and producer, but it's a different animal from about IBD with a focused topic and some voices that haven't been heard on this feed before. Much has changed since the production of this series in 2021, but our discussions are still relevant in so many ways. While working on this show, I learned more things than I can list, and I hope you get a little something out of it too. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode three of Healthcare Disparities in IBD. I'm your host, Amber Tresco. In this limited series, we're exploring how inequalities in the healthcare system affect people in minority groups who live with IBD. We continue this discussion in learning about how culture affects diet and nutrition. These are important parts of managing IBD, but they're often overlooked, and the standard advice doesn't always take preferences and culture into account. My guest is Dr. Selvi Vasudevan, who lives with Crohn's disease. Her journey with IBD was filled with pain, surgery, and complications. After taking time to learn how to work better with her own body, she discovered the balance between caring for her Crohn's disease and honoring her family's culture and traditions. She was led to found Dr. Selvi's Keys to Ease Crohn's, where she helps people with IBD regain their life from the pain, exhaustion, and other symptoms of Crohn's. Her background as a physician, a patient, and the daughter of immigrants from India make her the right person to discuss the impact of culture and nutrition on IBD. From New York City, let's talk to Dr. Selvi Vazadevan. Hi, Dr. Selvi. Hi, Amber. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing in uh, COVID-adjusted terms? <laughs> this is true. This has become the new normal of conversation, right? Um, all things considered, I'm doing really well. Uh, you know, initially, I went through my uh, bit of shock adjusting to things, but uh, things have settled in now, and I've, I'm in a bit of a groove, so things are good for me overall. Thank you. How about for yourself? Yeah, about about the same, you know? So we're sort of settling in. We're in the school year. We're dealing with all of this. The kids adjust much quicker than we do, but, you know, moving forward. Yeah. Great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you've been doing well. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today because I think that you're the perfect person to discuss this intersection of both nutrition and culture mm-hmm. as it relates specifically to IBD. So I want to get a little bit of a level set. Mm-hmm. Would you start by talking a bit about your cultural background and also your personal experience with Crohn's disease? Sure. Um, so growing up, uh, my parents are actually first generation immigrants from India and from the south of India. And so, you know, they had those traditional values of persistence, perseverance, determination, hard work, ambition, uh, achievement. Those sorts of things were really prized for sure. And that's 
how I was raised. And along with that, being immigrants in a new country was this whole wanting to almost go out of their way to not make waves, right? To fit in, to um, not make trouble, for lack of a better way of putting it, really. And those values kind of got passed on to me as well. So being in school, being a straight-A student, working really hard, making sure I check all the boxes off, so to speak, and um, making sure I did not get into trouble. So the whole perfectionist thing was big time in my blood um, and drove me through school, uh, through college. And so, you know, of course, the ambition thing, you know, getting into college, what college are you going to go into? What's your career path going to be? So all of this was sort of mapped out at a very young age for me. And I was okay with that, but then got to college and the diagnosis of Crohn's disease came along with that. So here I was, and my life had just got twist turned upside down. And my parents had no way of dealing with this. So all of our extended family was in India. We were very fortunate to have a very close circle of family friends who were basically our surrogate family. But for whatever reason, I guess, they felt the need to kind of put all of this on themselves. And so, you know, my parents were in this place where they were like, oh gosh, now this has happened to our daughter. This is not something that's going away, not something that's going to have a one-week antibiotic course and it's done with. This is going to be there for the rest of her life. Is she going to be able to function? Is she going to be able to finish school? Is she going to be able to get married, have children, on and on and on? And that was where their head was at. And sure, that was there for me too, because now, I know I wanted to be a doctor since I was a little, little kid. So was I going to be able to do that? But also, what were my limitations going to be, right? What was I not going to be able to do because of this diagnosis? Um, how was I going to be able to interact with friends? Could I? And could I do the things that I wanted to do and live this you know, big life that I had always wanted to live? And so there was a lot of fear involved. And for whatever reason, I would probably attribute it to mostly lack of know-how but probably not 100% that, we never sought out professional help of any sort in helping us process the emotions that came through. So no therapist or psychologist or anything like that. And even these family friends weren't really let in in a very deep way where they could support us in a meaningful way. So I felt that I needed to kind of do the same thing and keep most of my friends at bay too and not really let them in to support me through things. So... That was difficult because that's not me as a person. I thrive on close friendships. And if I'm going to be in a close friendship, I need to be able to tell my friend, hey, I can't eat this or my stomach's hurting. I can't come out today. And it just has to be a non-issue. And to not be able to do that was tough for me. So I compensated the only way I knew how. And that was to flip straight into my head and start working even harder and pushing even harder and drawing on that determination. So clawing my way through college and finding my way through medical school, come what may, and eventually letting in a few close friends because I just couldn't do it on my own. I don't think anyone can, and I don't think it's healthy, quite frankly. So I finally did let them in. And to their credit, the friends that I did let in, man, they showed up in the most beautiful, amazing way, encouraged me every step of the way, every time I had a difficulty a trial or a tribulation or something came up, something came up to trip me up, they were right there to support me and help me get through it and encourage me. And so that made a huge difference to me. You know, it wasn't until I, I moved much further along into my healing journey that I finally learned to start dealing with my emotions and, you know, um, addressing that more head on 
in a healthy way. And that made a huge world of difference. But at the time when I was first diagnosed, I certainly wasn't ready to, to go there. Couldn't process it. Denial was powerful. <laughs> right. And I think a lot of times we perhaps don't give the people around us enough credit that we can let them in and let them know what's going on and they will step up and support us. So true. We, we have to give them that opportunity. Yes. Do you think things might have been different had you had family that was close by physically? Yes, definitely. But even those family friends who were here, they are also Indian. So in terms of cultural background, very similar. And most of these family friends actually knew me since since I was born. In some cases, knew my family even before I was born. And I was the first one in my family born in this country. So even letting them in in a deeper way certainly would have given us a ton of support. Now, once I finally started to have surgeries, we had really no choice. They were let in and boy, did they ever show up. But if our extended family was here, yeah, things certainly would have been different, but in a different way, I feel like. So <laughs> I come from a family of people who want to fix it, who want to kind of make it better, who want to sort of take away the pain. And so in that sense, yes, it would have been helpful, but it sort of could have easily fallen into a codependent kind of a relationship as well. I get that. I understand a little bit about where you're coming from there with the wanting to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> um, being a fixer myself and coming from a long line of people that just want to fix it. And sometimes that's not what's needed or necessary. Exactly. You want someone to understand what you're going through mm -hmm. and not necessarily take action about it. Correct. Sometimes it's just see me, hear me, understand me, and that's enough like to feel validated. Exactly. You did make it through medical school. <laughs> I know that about you, yeah. which is why you're Dr. Selvi. Yeah. <laughs> but today you focus on how nutrition affects IBD. And that's what I want to get to the heart of mm -hmm. today. And you work with patients and you help them meet their nutritional goals. Mm -hmm. So how does your background and experience as a doctor and then also as a patient how has that led you to this work and how does it inform your work in this space? I'm going to rewind just for a second because what you need to know is this. I was a patient long before I was a doctor. And so the trials and tribulations started way before I had ever stepped into medical school. And that was formative to me in my education and my process and all of that. So by the time I'd gotten to medical school, I was already diagnosed. I had already had my gallbladder taken out. I had already been on steroids, been diagnosed with osteoporosis, had a compression fracture, had two major surgeries, one of which was a temporary ostomy, which was reversed, and a couple near brushes with death just for good measure. So, <laughs> and I can laugh about it now, not so much at the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so it kind of almost goes without saying, but maybe it's worth saying that I had a deep empathy for the patient experience because I'd been there. And so, that led me to form really deep connections with my patients. And I loved that part of medicine. Like, you know, I could really see what this person was going through. Like, I knew what it felt like to be hospitalized and be in that room for 24 hours. So when I was going in to take a health history on my patient and my patient is saying, get the heck out of my room. I really don't want to see your face. I knew exactly why he was saying that. Because <laughs> I didn't want to see the medical student's face either when I was in the hospital room. So... 
Um, that really spoke to me. But then, you know, learning the science behind it, it helped me to develop a really profound respect and understanding for the human body and how it works. And so the physiology spoke to me and the pathology of why disease happens and how it happens. And then the pharmacology and the pharmacokinetics helped me understand a lot more about medications and their side effects and how that played out. But it wasn't until, you know, later on when I really had no choice but to dive down and, you know, figure out how I was going to help myself. And it took a lot for that to happen. It, it took me needing another surgery where I was in the hospital. And, you know, when they say doctors make the worst patients? Yeah, it was true in my case because I was in my hospital bed basically managing my fluids from my hospital bed, much to the chagrin of the entire hospital staff. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and then it was once I finally started to step out of the box and explore more complementary therapies and alternative therapies that I was able to look at the body as a whole. And that was when I was like, aha, here's the missing piece. You know, I knew a bit about, you know, how it felt to be as a patient, how it felt as a doctor. And I had some of the education, but there was something that was missing. And so this seemed to be that cohesive piece. So once I started to implement changes and I saw how deeply that the body could heal, like my body started to heal and reverse things on its own when it was given the right tools and the right techniques and creating the right environment in the body. That was just, it blew my mind, quite honestly. That led me to pursue then health coaching finally after I started to live my life, get to remission and all of that. It's like, you know what? This is going to translate to other people. And so I was able to do that. And we, we do speak deeply about the nutrition because that's the foundation Right? I believe that you are what you eat, and I've seen that in action over and over again. So absolutely, there is a connection. I still sometimes will hear from clients where you know they're told that there is not a connection between diet and how you feel or you know your symptoms. And I've seen the opposite. You know, I've seen that it plays a huge role. Not the only role, but it absolutely plays a huge role, and it forms the foundation of the work that I do. So like all IBD patients who have to figure out how to navigate this idea of what to eat, mm -hmm. you've been on this journey. And I hesitate to say, but I presume that you're still learning yeah. about how to navigate the intersection of food and culture and IBD all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about the ways in which food is important to you and the way that food is important in your family and then also in your circle of friends? Um, so let's start with family, I suppose, since that's kind of where it started. That relationship was interesting. So, you know, food is kind of like the centerpiece of every get together of even just daily dinners um, at home growing up. And so food was a sign of love. So food was a sign of my mother's love. She had gone to work, she came back, she prepared dinner, you know, and she would serve it. And if I couldn't eat it, this was like a sticky place to be. And it was never anything personal, but she felt bad because, you know, her, her daughter can't eat. And I feel bad because she's put in all this effort and I'm not able to eat this. And then I'm getting creative and there's just this very bizarre dynamic, you know, Back when I didn't know what to eat or how to eat and what worked for my body, it was just very confusing for all of us to try and figure out how to navigate that sort of thing. So I had to personally, I had to change my relationship with food and that took time. 
because I have historically been a world-class foodie. And I remember when I was diagnosed and one of the things my GI doctor had said at the time was, you need to stop eating fried foods. And my mom would make these delicious fried lentil fritters that I adored. And so I was like, what do you mean no fried foods? I can't live without those. You've got to be crazy. And so I would eat certain things that weren't working for me, sometimes just out of stubbornness, sometimes out of trying to fit in, sometimes out of trying to conform and would kind of make myself sick in the process. So it took me taking a deep look at that and what really works for my body more objectively and not so emotionally and really realizing that we could connect as people with or without food right? So I could be eating something potentially different than what my family was eating, if need be. And we would still be connected because we're family, because we're blood. And we will always be connected in that way. And they want me to be healthy and they want me to be safe. And they want me to do what I need to do to stay that way. And so that was a huge mindset shift for me that had to happen in order for me to start embracing more of what was working for me. So you know, I, I had to give up the spicy food for a while. It just, it wasn't working. Yeah, I know. I wasn't too thrilled about that either. My mom makes some of the most delicious chicken curry on the planet to this day. So, you know, I've come a long way, but there was certainly a period of time where it was just not happening, no matter you know, what accommodations. Um, friends, much easier though. You know, friends are like, eat whatever you want, as long as you're healthy and, you know, you're, you're doing fine. Like, we don't really care. So that was easy. Did you ever have any kind of a direct conversation about what you were saying that that food is almost a way that that a mom or, or other people show love? Mm-hmm. Was that ever something that you sort of addressed head on or did it sort of naturally evolve? That sort of naturally evolved. Yeah, I think we were very um, avoidant. In my family, each one of us was sort of trying to deal and not deal in our own ways and kind of with each in our heads. So um, I don't even know if we had that concept of sitting down and having an open conversation of, you know, this isn't working for me. You know, I would try, but I'm pretty sure I was not very effective. It was just more like, you know, this is too spicy. I can't handle it. I don't think that was very effective. So. Yeah. And also you were so young. I mean, yeah. you know, it's really challenging to have those kind of conversations. Like, you know, even as, even as we get older, so having them when you're young is really, yeah. really something else. Yeah. It's interesting to me because it's almost like really a very profound expression of love that all of you were trying to deal with your own stuff in your own way and not burden the other people. It's a very sort of um, strange way of loving someone by trying not to make their journey more difficult. (laughs) A little roundabout, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. good. (laughs) Yeah. You now have this profound lived experience Mm -hmm. with really learning about nutrition and IBD. And now that you work with patients, how do you try to honor this idea that food is important in a way that goes beyond just nourishing our bodies? It's important in our culture, religion, and family. But then, like you were saying with your mom's fabulous curries, that that might not necessarily fit into a personalized plan for IBD at that moment. So mm-hmm. how does this all come together when you're working with your patients? Wow, that's a broad question. <laughs> <laughs> In a word, 
it kind of comes down to mindset, I would say. Mm-hmm. But it's it's working on that relationship with food. So, you know, when someone is coming to me and we're talking, you know, for the first time and we're going to start working together, I sit and have an open conversation with them. You know, what are your likes? What are your dislikes? What foods can you absolutely not live without? What are your favorite foods? What do you know doesn't work for you? Those sorts of things give me sort of a foundation of where we're getting started. And more often than not, it's a lot of compromise. It's creativity, for sure, too. So if they know, for example, that there is this family dinner that's happening, and maybe they can't have every single item that's going to be on the table, but they can share in something or maybe a few things, that's awesome. And I get them to take a look at that and be like, hey, you know what? You can have these things. Isn't that awesome? Like, even though certain things might not work for you, but these things are really working for you. And perhaps bringing up something new, creating some new traditions, that's the opportunity that can come up. That's one thing that I had to learn too, right? Was just sometimes, you know, it's it's these particular things that are done on this particular festival for this particular thing. And so sometimes it's just throwing out a new idea and being like, hey, why don't we try this in addition to maybe not necessarily in place of. And with immediate family, it tends to be easier because more often than not, they just want us to be healthy. They just want us to be safe. And they're more than happy to meet us halfway if we just tell them where to start. Um, And so that helps a lot, I have found. And it's honoring, of course. Yes, religion is important. Of course, culture is important. Tradition is important. And food plays a role. But these things go also beyond just food. Food is a part of it. It's not um, the only thing. And it doesn't have to be either or. You can be on a healing diet and you can embrace your culture and you can embrace your religious festivals and your traditions and the get-togethers and those sorts of things. It's just how do we do it in a way that is easy for you? How do we do it in a way that works for you? And so there's, you know, some individual tailoring that has to happen. But, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And, you know, I am willing to go there with, with someone who If they really want it to happen, we will find a way to make it happen. And of course it should. I mean, it's part of life, right? Celebrations and family and culture and traditions, those are all part of who we are. Yeah. So it's walking that line between what's possible, what's right for you, Mm -hmm. and then also honoring your culture and your background Mm -hmm. as it relates to food. Yes. So sometimes, I think not often enough, but sometimes IBD patients uh, get referred to a dietitian for help in understanding how to um, create a plan for themselves. I looked up the demographics for registered dietitians in the United States. I was curious. And what I discovered was, is that they are 90% female Mm -hmm. and 80% white. And it seems to me that the lack of diversity is something that might not be serving all patients who live with IBD. Well, I think, first of all, just the fact that we are finally becoming aware of this and having these conversations is getting the ball moving in the right direction, which I think is fantastic. So do we need more diversity? I think pretty much all of us can agree. Absolutely. A resounding yes, for sure. Um, Because as a patient... Oftentimes, you tend to look for someone that you resonate with. You tend to look for someone who you think is going to understand where you're coming from. And so I think that's where the diversity can be really useful. You know, if I am, you know, for example, 
I'm Indian and if I'm eating, you know, rice and curry or, you know, what have you every single day, I want someone who's going to understand where I'm coming from. And, you know, I've been on the flip side of that too. When people come to me and they're talking to me about their dal and chapati and does this work and that work and like, okay, yeah, I can speak your language. I know what that means. So, you know, um, it makes communication easier and it helps them to open up a little bit more than they might not otherwise. So when you see someone who doesn't necessarily look like you, sometimes there's this assumption that, oh, this person must not really understand where I'm coming from. So perhaps I'm not going to even be as forthcoming with everything that's going on. The communication needs to be there. And if that patient feels that they can't open up and tell you what's going on, then that's, that's a problem. As I was putting together my questions for you, my first instinct was to focus on how patients can help their team better understand the importance of the cultural aspects of their care. But then I stopped myself because I realized that that's the wrong question. So I want to turn this around a little bit. And I think what we should actually talk about is how we can help healthcare professionals better understand how they can support their patients from different backgrounds. And that's great because, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like it comes down to communication. I feel that's absolutely key. And so regardless of what the patient's background is, they want nothing more than to be seen, heard, understood. Um, you know, we've all had, or at least I've had experiences, even as a patient where I've waited in the waiting room for a good hour, rushed into, you know, the, uh, actual exam room was seen by the fellow runs out, wait another half an hour, see the attending and five minutes and rushed out the door. What the patient wants is for you to just sit there for five minutes or 10 minutes or as long as you have and be curious be like, hey, you know, what is life like for you? You know, what do your meals look like? What do family get-togethers look like? What's important to you? And the fact that you take those five minutes and acknowledge that they've got a whole series of struggles outside of your exam room that you have no idea about allows them to open up and allows them to at least start having that conversation. And once they feel that you care, which you do, of course, that's why we're all in this field, but when they actually feel that and they trust you, then they will open up and start telling you things. And that helps you to help them in a better, more effective way. And it helps the next patient too. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different way of thinking about things for me too. Being a, a long-term patient, I have learned to sort of get my most pressing issues out and sort of get them out as quickly as possible. Um, yeah. Because that's the thing that I want to address. And I know that there's always a time limit there, which is unfortunate. What's been really interesting is when I take my kids to the pediatrician, mm -hmm. they will talk as long as they want to talk. <laughs> And I sometimes am sitting there going, I know this, I know he's got another patient to get to. And I'm thinking to myself that things need to move a little quicker because that's sort of what I've gotten used to. Mm -hmm. But the kids don't have that. They are just expressing their concerns in the way that is coming most natural to them. Yeah. And, you know, I wish that every interaction could be that way. And, and I almost feel like I have some unlearning to do. Mm -hmm. 
the way that my own care is addressed in that way. It's true. And it's crazy how quickly we become conditioned to do that. It's like, you know, we have our questions all ready to go and boom, 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 and done. Yeah. Tell me more, though, about Dr. Selvi's Keys to Ease Crohn's. How do you work with patients? When a patient comes to you and starts working with you, what are the steps that you take them through and what does that sort of look like? So we start out first, um, you know, when I speak with them initially, we see where they're at. And, you know, everyone is sort of quite often at a different place and wants to achieve different goals. So we get that established right off the bat. And so, um, you know, I work with them in a mentorship and I work really closely with IBD patients and I help them to regain their energy, to get their confidence back and to get their lives back. And so quite often people who come to me are, are in a lot of distress and are in a pretty dark place and or are confused and frustrated, not knowing you know, what to eat or what to do or just how to help themselves on a, on a deeper level. And so... What I help them do in, in a sentence really is just to understand what their body is trying to tell them and to help them work with their body. That sounds easy, but it's actually harder to do than it is to say. So um, that's why we work together over a period of time and you know we dive into everything because as I said, yes, the nutrition is important. The food is absolutely important. That's the foundation, but there is so much more than that. As you and I very well know, this disease permeates every single aspect of life and we delve into all of that. So I draw on all of my personal experience, you know, as a doctor, as a patient, having healed myself and, you know, other clients that I've worked with, I draw on every single resource that I have to help people when they work with me. And what I've found is that when people really want to make a change and they're ready to make a change, the results that they get are just, it blows my mind every time. Joint pain starts to decrease, like energy starts to come back, their skin starts to improve, their weight starts to bounce, their relationships start to heal. And of course, the digestion will normalize as well. But, you know, it's like all of these other beneficial effects that come up as a result and they start to get their lives back. It's just, it's amazing. And for me to be in this position where I can guide people as they're transforming their health, transforming their bodies and transforming their lives, it's just... It's amazing, and I consider it the ultimate privilege. It does sound amazing, and I think you're doing incredible work in the IBD community. And you said a word that I've never really thought very deeply about in connection with IBD, but confidence. So having this confidence to tackle these problems. Right. And it's, it's confidence in your body because, you know, most of us have spent, like, I know I'd spent at least over 10 years going, my body doesn't know what the heck it's doing. It's got a mind of its own. Like, please, I don't know when this thing is going to, you know, go nuts and, and send me into the bathroom. Like, we've all been in that place. So to have the confidence that we can even just you know, go for a walk, you know, go out to a restaurant with friends and just be comfortable in your own skin, like that, that's huge. Like, that was a game changer for me and for, you know, many of the people that I work with. So you're, you're right. It's not brought up very often. And yet it's when that happens, it's, it's priceless. You know, the change that I see, the joy that comes on people's faces, it just, it feeds my soul. Dr. Selby, I want everybody to be able to find you and find the great information that you have available. Mm -hmm. How can people get in contact with you? 
Uh, sure. So my website's going to be the best way, uh, the easiest way. It's www.drselby.com. So that's www.drselby.com. And actually, uh, for people who happen to be listening, I'm offering a free gift. It's what I call my Keys to Ease Crohn's Starter Kit, and it includes a quiz. Uh, it includes some tips to get you started and a few easy recipes to get you started as well. So um, that's available on my website. Just click on where it says Starter Kit and it'll download for you. People with IBD are often encouraged to work with a dietitian. However, there's not much in the way of nutritional and family support for people who live with IBD that are from diverse backgrounds. Dr. Selvi works to address these disparities and offers a closed Facebook group where she provides tools, tips, and recipes for people who live with IBD. You can follow Dr. Selvi's Keys to Ease Crohn's at drselvi.com as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I will put all the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I'm Amber Tresca, reminding you that healthcare is a human right. Healthcare Disparities in IBD is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresco. Theme music, mix, and sound design is by Cooney Studio. Thank you.